Good morning, and thank you. I'm sorry for the imposition there. Now, I had some notes, and I have lost them between the office and here. I have no clue what happened to them. I thought I put it right in there where I wanted to be, but it's going to be one of those days. Second Peter. We have a couple of prayer letters here, and I looked up, and one of the prayer letter writers is right over here. I had Comer's comments here. Richard, you want to come up and comment on your prayer letter? You, you might as well come. Just give us a first-hand report. I'm more interested in them hearing about the, how dangerous it's gotten. Of course, we read in the paper, but, you know, when you're under the gun, it's a little different. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I think you're referring to Mexico, the yes. situation Primarily. there in Mexico. In uh, 1990, we had a young couple come down from Blairsville, Georgia. He was a youth pastor, Mark and Cindy Ernst. They, they come to visit us there in Saltillo. And uh, some of the folks here from the church have been to Saltillo, so you know where that is. But he came down with a group of young people, six young people from their church in Blairsville, hoping that some of them would be called to the mission field. Well, you know what happened. Uh, he and his wife were touched with a need there, and they came back in 1993 as missionaries there. And what happened, we took them out to see some of the small towns and villages and the Catholic buildings that are there. He had the young people stand in this one town over against the Catholic centered building there. They call them cathedrals, but it, it was just uh, the largest building in the town of Artiaga. And uh, he had the young people standing over there, and Mark was looking, and he was there on some steps at the park getting them all focused up, and he, he noticed above the doors of the building there that said, Established 1790. And Mark is one of these guys, he's mathematic and mathematician, and he got to thinking, he said, that's 10,400 Sundays that no one has preached the gospel here in this town. And uh, he went back, he took the picture of the kids, he went back home, he called me several months later, and he said, Richard, I can't get away from that. 10,400 Sundays no one's preached. He said, God's put on our heart to come back and start a church in that town. Well, they went to deputation, language school, Costa Rica, came and worked with us in several months there in the church in Saltillo, then moved to the town of Artiaga and started the Faith Baptist Church there. And the church is there today, but it's, it's under attack like others. Mark and Cindy uh, raised their three boys, four boys now. They had another son born there. But uh, the little kids that went down that were just fabulous little kids, Ben and Zach and Jesse. Well, Jesse had just finished Bible school and is going to be a missionary. And uh, God had put on his heart to, to work in missions. So Mark and Cindy needed to take furlough. So Jesse came down to live in their home to work with the people that he had grown up with, that he had seen his folks win, and he had had a part in teaching also. He was coming back to take over the church and uh, be there while his folks were on furlough. And everything was going good. Mark and Cindy had been gone about a month. But there, there's tension there. There's uh, danger. And uh, Mark had told Jess, he said, always have money in your pocket, a half a tank of gas, and know where your passport is if you have to get out. And, you know, that's kind of unsettling to tell your kid that. But uh, Jesse was happy. One uh, Wednesday afternoon, he was coming into their house, 
to the gate, pulled up there, was getting ready to drive in. Three dark vehicles with dark windows pulled up beside him. A guy got out with a AK-47 strung over his shoulder, walked up and uh, told Jesse, he said, be out of here within an hour, or if we come back in here, you're here, you're dead. So Jesse went inside, called his folks, told what had happened, got his passport, threw a few clothes in, and in about 15 minutes he was on the road. And he called them every half hour or so to let them know that he was headed to Laredo to get across the border. But things like that are happening. Uh, the pastor, Noe, the church where you folks, some of the folks went down to Bill there, uh, he has people that sit outside on that little street there. Uh, he says they're there constantly. He don't know who they are. They don't bother them. But he said, uh, since Patty and I had lived there in the pastorium, we know what it's like to be isolated. There, there are buildings around there, but not residential area. So there, there's danger. But Noe said God has been good. The church is growing. People are being saved. But we have other missionary friends over in uh, Ciudad Juarez, right across from El Paso. Patty and I were out there in uh, January. I preached in a church in Juarez. And the pastor, the Mexican pastor, as, as we were there, he said, this is the safest place you could be. And Patty picks up on things. I, that didn't mean anything. You know, it's always good to be in the house of God. But he repeated that several times, and Patty said, I knew something was happening, but we didn't know what. Well, the next morning, we were back over in New Mexico on the other side of the border, and the headlines on the El Paso paper, 14 people killed Saturday night. Uh, 28 were shot. They were just rounded up and shot children and young people. And uh, that's why the pastor was saying the safest place to be is in the house of God. Patty and I are, are working down in Mexico. I've been going down for medical caravans to the city of Morelia, which is about uh, 800 miles down into Mexico between Guadalajara and Mexico City. And it's the, the headquarters of one of the drug cartels called the family, La Familia. And uh, they're notorious for their brutality. And last year when uh, we were there, the pastor had us stay in homes. In 2008, we stayed in a hotel. Well, before we got there in 2009, there was some shooting outside the hotel there. And the pastor was afraid that some of the doctors or nurses or dentists or myself would be going in and out when something like that happened. So he had to stay in homes. This year, the doctors, dentists, the Mexican doctors and dentists that travel all over the country have decided not to travel because uh, they would be targets for being stopped out on the open road in the bus they travel in and, and be robbed or killed or who knows what. So... They're, they're really asking for prayer. The deacon's wife, one of the men there in Saltillo, Francisco, and Ruby, uh, she sent us a, a note saying that people are getting together, Christian people all over Mexico, are asking people to stop at 8 o'clock at night and just pray for the peace of Mexico, like we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Mexico, that churches would be able to have services, that missionaries would be able to travel. Patty and I, at this time, are, are going to be working more in Central America and also with Spanish churches here in the States instead of traveling in Mexico right at this time because there is danger being uh, out on the road. A guy gave me a 
92 Volkswagen Bug. This guy, he's in our home church down near uh, Atlanta, Georgia, but he was a, a rooster fighter, and he traveled down to Mexico in the 80s and 90s involved in that. And uh, while he was down there, he bought a Volkswagen and brought it back. It's been sitting there in his house for years. He gave it to me a few months ago and said, it's got a Mexican tag on it. Take it back down to Mexico. Maybe you can drive that and not be as visible. Well, it's got a bad motor, so I've got to have to tow it down to the border to get parts for it. But that that's one possibility to be able to use a vehicle that doesn't attract attention that's got Mexican plates on it. But our heart is uh, there with the Mexican people, the Central American people. I'm leaving the 30th to go to Costa Rica. We'll be there for meetings in some churches. And uh, there's other meetings that we'll be going to in Honduras and Nicaragua. Years ago, those were the most dangerous places to be. But that's moved on up north into Mexico. And it's uh, if you heard, as I was driving this morning, heard about a shootout uh, with some drug dealers across the border at drug agents uh, that had picked up, our border patrol agents that had picked up some drugs on the U.S. side, and they were shot at from the Mexican side. So the, things are changing there, but the need to get the gospel there is still the same, and uh, missionaries are there working. We have some friends that are in different areas of Mexico. They're very cautious, but little by little, things like what happened to Jesse are happening to others. So pray for the missionaries there in Mexico. Pray for the country that God would continue to keep it open so that the gospel can be there. And uh, pray for Patty and I that our ministry would, would go forward. Patty's mom, as I mentioned, uh, is in the hospital memorial 132. If you happen to have someone down there that you're going to see, I know that the family would love to see you. But uh, she's having some problems, and uh, we just don't know what the end result of this is going to be. My mom is in a nursing home in Rome. She's 93. So both of us are spending time with our moms and uh, trying to help our family take care of them and encourage them, as well as the work that we're doing visiting churches and traveling into foreign countries. So we're stretched out a little bit, but I thank God for the opportunity to serve. And I appreciate the fact that you were going to mention our letter, Alan, and uh, have people pray for us because we know that that's encouraging to know that people do care and people are praying for what missionaries are doing. So God bless you. Thank you. Sir. Thank you, Richard. That was a good report. And I just wanted you to know about the difficulties there. I mean, I know you read about in the paper, but when you're, you know, moving about in the country, that's a little bit, a little bit scary. We have a letter from David Edens also, and I'll refrain from reading. It's, you know, his are always lengthy. He's got a lot going on, but he's back in Agadez and out in the desert and, has some opportunities to um, put some of his books that he has translated on the Internet. And I just thought I'd show you, maybe, well, you can't really see it here, but it's it was amazing to me. Now, Agadez, Niger Republic, that's North Africa. He flies into a city called Niamey. And it's about another day's travel, about a 1,000 miles to get to Agadez, out in the desert. And here in that city, <clears throat> there's a cyber cafe, and there's a little sign right there that says Google. <laughs> I mean, that's in, in the colors, you know, it's, it's got the red and the yellow, the green, blue, and all that, just like you'd find right here. Google. 
cyber cafes. The young generation, he says, are using those things, and so he's seeing an opportunity to put those things out there and make them available. You know, for it's a great, great tool. So we need to be remembering him uh, as well and his travels and safety there. Um, matter of fact, he mentions in the letter, just to correspond with there exactly with what Richard was saying, is that uh, several of the travel agencies around the world have recommended absolutely no travel whatsoever to that area of, the, of, of Africa, North Africa in particular, uh, just because of the dangers there. So he's like many missionaries. They, they know how to lurk get around, keep undercover, and still do their work. But, of course, there comes a time sometimes when you just have to leave. And <clears throat> that's what we need to pray for and keep them under, under uh, the Lord's wings and his place of protection. Okay, Second Timothy, or Peter, rather, Second Peter chapter 3. Like I said, I don't know what in the world, where my notes got to. It was only from the office to here. You know, I think I tore that off now that I'm thinking. I think I stuck it back in the drawer and shut the drawer. That's what I did. That's probably where it's at. Well, we'll see. We've just finished up Chapter 2, a lengthy chapter. We spent a considerable amount of time at it uh, simply because there's a lot of material there. And, you know, now as he's moving on to Chapter 3, it's sort of like he's taking up a different topic, and yet at the same time, He's continuing on. It seems like he has the thoughts of the false teachers in view. And so we're going to look at it and probably make reference back to the second chapter on a few occasions and dealing with some of these things. We'll read a few verses here. I don't know how far we'll go today. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that's a interesting passage, and a lot of disagreement over it, and some of it particularly verse 5 and 6, not the easiest to understand um, exactly what he's referring to. But we'll deal with that when we come to it. One of the things I want us to notice in this chapter, and of course it's the final chapter of this little letter, is this use of the word beloved. 
And you'll see that in verse 1, this second epistle, beloved. Also in verse 8, we read there, beloved. And in verse 14, he says, wherefore, beloved. And then also in verse 17, he says, ye therefore, beloved. And it's interesting that in, in connection with each of these cases, he has an exhortation for us. In the first one, in verse 1, he says, Beloved. In verse 2, he says, Be mindful. And he deals with that topic. Over in verse 8, he says, But, Beloved, be not ignorant. And then over in verse 14, Beloved, he says, you, uh, Seeing that you look for such things, be diligent. And then in the last one, in verse 17, he says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware. Beware. Now, there's a lot to encompass in this passage, but he's wrapping things up. And he's dealing with the end of the age. He's dealing with what we would call the eschaton, or the, the end when things are finally wrapped up. And we don't want to forget where he's come from. Because in chapter 1, we saw what the goal was, the purpose was, the desire was for those who had obtained this like precious faith as Peter and the other apostles was that they might ultimately through adding and growing in their faith, result in this abundant entrance, a rich welcome into his everlasting kingdom. Or as we saw that it's literally his age-lasting or age-abiding kingdom. And I think a very direct reference to the millennial kingdom, the messianic promise that was given to us in the Old Testament given to Israel, passed on to us, still held out there as a promise of rest to the people of God to enter into. And so as we progress and grow in our Christian faith, the ultimate outcome has a purpose to it. And as we well noted, you know, it's not just necessarily get to heaven, but it's to fulfill a purpose for which God made us. And that is to enter into that kingdom and there serve and with the Lord Jesus Christ and share in his coming rule. Now, in chapter 2, he began to warn us then about false teachers. And boy, he went into a lengthy discussion about those who teach error. And it wasn't just that they went clear off the deep end, but we saw that they mixed truth and error. Enough so that it said many would follow in their pernicious ways. Taken in. But now as we come to the third chapter, as he begins to zero in again on the close of the age and the coming of Christ, we see this ultimate connection between what the false teachers were denying. And it has to do with the coming of the Lord.
So keep that, thing, that in mind while we work our way through this passage. And he says this second epistle. Of course, he's, we have First Peter. There's dispute over that. I don't have any problem with it. First Peter's First Peter. Second Peter's Second Peter. That was the first letter. This is the second one. Some think there was a lost epistle. I think we've got them right here. Exactly what God intended for us to have. And he tells us here, this second epistle, beloved, I now write. And that little word now tells us, it's a time word, and it tells us that there wasn't a long, a long period of time between the writing of the first letter and the writing of the second letter. And he obviously had some things he needed to say that he didn't cover in the first letter. Now, maybe he heard some news, some reaction to the first letter. I have no idea. Whatever it was, it prompted him then to write this epistle. And he says, I now write to you in both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, you see that word both is in italics. And it's been supplied by the translators. And I'm just going to tell you a little story there. I've wondered for a long, long time, why did they supply the word both there? I mean, if you leave that out, it would simply read, The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in which I stir up your pure minds. But I found out the answer, and it's legitimate. The little word, in which, is plural. And so he's talking about, you know, without actually having to say it, just like we do, we leave unsaid the implied word, in which epistles I stir up your pure minds. And so we find a very legitimate reason for adding the word both in there. And both of these epistles were for the purpose of stirring up their minds. And that little word, minds, it's a compound word, and it has the word dia in front of it. And it means to, to, you know, through. And so it means to think through something, to think deeply about something. And Peter's intent then is to stir up their minds by way of remembrance. Now, if we turn back to chapter 1 and verse 13, we find that Peter's already mentioned this in this letter. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, Yea, I think it meet, <coughs> as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, that even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me, made clear to me, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease or my departure, to have these things always in remembrance. Now, I want us to look also in verse 2. He says, that ye may be mindful. Not the same Greek word. It's a different word. And the point that Peter's getting at here is that they would think these things, first of all, through very deeply and then secondly, be mindful of them. That is, get it fixated in your mind. Settle it as an axiom of truth. 
from the prophetic word concerning the things he's about to discuss here. Of course, it would also relate back to chapter 1 and the things he gave us there concerning the coming of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. And so now he tells them that they might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. You know, that's a, that's a unified message. The holy prophets of the Old Testament, the commandments of the apostles of us, of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was a singular message that the apostles continued to teach. Why did they continue to teach that? Because they had gotten it from the Lord Jesus Christ, which was the same message that John the Baptist used to introduce the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as they began to preach and proclaim this message, he determined that we needed to get it fixed in our minds, to be mindful of it. Now, that means you need to think about it. That means it needs to be something that we don't cast doubt upon, that it's fixed for us. Now, I can just tell you, doubts can come. And sometimes we can begin to wonder, is this thing really true? Is this promise, as these mockers and scoffers we will talk about, ask the question, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? If it's really true. And people begin to doubt. You know, they knew. They knew the message. They were no different from those in chapter 2, the false teachers that we found out knew the truth. And they understood what the gospel was. And in the end, in the end, we saw at the end of this chapter, Peter said it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And there we see the word commandment given to us again. And so it was a dangerous thing. And it's a dangerous thing on our part to wander away or stray or err in the matter of the truth, but to be firm and bold in it. Now, he tells us in verse 3, he begins to tell us now exactly what it is that he's going to deal with, knowing this first. Knowing this first as a matter of priority, of a matter as a matter of utter importance. Just want to make sure I didn't lay it down there. Uh, I'm wondering where that thing is. You didn't see it? I don't know what I did with it. This is of primary importance, Peter says. This is something that is at the forefront. Knowing this first. Now, <coughs> excuse me. It's not the first time he's used that little phrase either because if we turn back again to chapter 1 and we look at verse 20. And in this chapter, in this verse, he says, knowing this first. So in the context, 
What is it that's most important here? Well, if we look at verse 20, he says that no prophecy of the Scripture, no prophetic word is of any private interpretation. And he's telling us how the prophecy came. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God, that's the same holy prophets over here in chapter 3, spake as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Ghost. And so really we find here that this knowing this first is actually the same, same basic topic. He's dealing with the prophetic word. He's dealing with the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And that's what he's dealing with here in chapter 3. So he hasn't changed anything. There's a marvelous unified message to this letter. And then he says that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Now, if you'll turn over to Jude and the 18th verse. Jude's epistle and the 18th verse. In verse 17 he says, But you, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now we've known that there are a lot of parallels between Jude and Peter, Second Peter in particular. Here we have the idea of remembrance. But we also have, in verse 18, he says, How that they told you there should be mockers. In the last time. Now, what's translated as mockers here is translated as scoffers over here in 2 Peter chapter 3, but it's the same Greek word. And it's the only place, two places it's used in Scripture. So, scoffers or mockers, same idea. Those who scoff at a biblical or scriptural truth. And not only do they mock at it, but the clear implication is, is they have rejected it and don't hold to it. Exactly what many in our day have done. I mean, they don't see a literal second coming of Christ today. But of course... As we see the events in this world of ours unfolding before us in the news or even right here in our own city, everything seems to be pointing exactly in the opposite direction. That there is going to be a, some great event that just seems like it's right over the horizon coming our way. And, of course, Scripture makes it abundantly clear exactly what that is. And that's the coming of the long-promised Messiah. Oh, but they question that in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? Now, because I've misplaced my notes, I don't know if I can remember even one of those references just off the top of my head, but one was in Isaiah, and I'm going to see if it's right here. It is. I can remember one of them anyway. How about Isaiah chapter 5? 
in verse 19. Now see, this, this mockery regarding the coming of the Messiah was nothing new. It took place in the days of the prophets when they were preaching this very message and proclaiming the promise of the Lord that there would be a prophet who would come to deliver his people Israel who would destroy their enemies, who would establish them in peace as a nation. In verse 19 it says, well, verse 18, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin as it were with the cart rope, that say, Let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh, and come, that we may know it. Woe unto them. Woe unto them. Now their mockery here is being spoken of in the same way that these mockers that Peter is talking about. It's like the mockery that they spoke against the Lord Jesus Christ when they say, Hey, you be the Son of God? Come on down off that cross. They're simply saying, Hey, if there's a promise of His coming, where's He at? Haven't seen it. And of course now we've seen nearly 3,000 years pass since the prophets of old, over 3,000 years pass, actually, since these prophets of old had made these prophecies. And it hasn't come to pass yet. And now we're casting doubt and wondering, is it really, really going to happen. Oh, and I turned away. There was, a, there was another one there. Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse 22. Turn over there. Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse He says there, Son of man, what is that proverb that ye have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged, and every vision fails? Tell them, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to seize, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say unto them, The days are at hand, and the effect of every vision. In other words, just tell them, keep telling them it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Look at verse 26. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, the vision that he sees is for many days to come, and he prophesies of the times that are far off. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, there shall none of my words be prolonged any more, but the word which I have spoken shall be done, saith the Lord. Now, they were saying these things with regard to the impending invasion that was to take place. And they said, oh, he's talking about something that's way long ways away, not something for us to worry about. And the Lord responded by telling them, you tell them it's going to happen and very soon. And it did. And so this promise of the Lord's coming is something we need to hang on to. We need to cling to it as a truth of the prophetic word 
as we saw literally back there in, in uh, chapter 1, that it's going to come to pass. Well, when he says for, he says, where is the promise of his coming for? He's now going to give the reasoning of these scoffers. Here's the rationale they give as to why they think the Lord isn't going to come. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, you know, in a way, it's pretty hard to argue. Been about 6,000 years now and reckoning since the beginning of the world and creation. Nothing's happened yet. All things are continuing just like they were. Now, the promise of the Lord's coming, you know, one of the things we need to look at or think about, just remember, be mindful of, is that when the, they are saying this, you know, it, it's really, in a way, it's hard to comprehend even for, as I think about that, but they, to know or, or to realize what they understood. I'm talking about the mockers here, the false teachers, the scoffers. What they understood about the second coming, but they knew it. They knew the prophecies. They knew what the prophets had said. They knew what Moses had said. And so they understood that this coming was really like a big cataclysmic event. It was going to be a radical, world-changing event when the Messiah comes. And yet, they're saying, we haven't seen any such great events since the creation of the world. So, how can we really be sure that this one's going to happen? Well, you look at the next verse, in verse 5. And he says, they're not mindful of something. He says, for this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. Now there's a lot of difficulties in this passage, and consequently you have a lot of interpretations applied to it. But I think the easiest is to simply make the parallel that Peter's trying to make with verse 7. And so in verse 7, let's look at that then first. He says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store. So one of the first things I think, and one of the stronger things I think that helps us, is to realize what he's saying there concerning the heavens and the earth. Because whatever is going to happen to the heavens and the earth in the future, Peter has saying, is saying here that these mockers were, are ignorant of the fact that a cataclysmic event happened to the heavens and the earth at a point in time in the past. Now, of course, the question is, is what point in time is that? What do we identify it with? Well, back in verse 4, you remember he said there 
all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, I know that the popular interpretation is to point this back to the flood. And there's, and there's plausible arguments, by the way. But I think the parallel here and the stronger argument is to point it back to creation. So let's look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now that, you know, sometimes we struggle finding things in the Bible, but that's an easy one. First chapter, first verse. And there he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Wow, there's our topic. Heavens and earth. Verse 2, And the earth was without form and void. Or as I think it says there literally, and the earth became without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so you have a condition described here where waters covered the earth. And then out of this chaos... God brought about the creation in verse 3 when he said, let there be light and so on and continued on through describing the process that he went through in creating the earth. And of course, it was by the word of God, as Peter states. By the word of God, he says, the heavens were of old. Verse 7, he says, by the same word, they are being held or kept in store reserved for a future judgment, a judgment of fire. Now, we've seen Peter use this word already before. Remember back in chapter 2 and verse 4? Concerning the angels that sinned, verse 4, For if God spared not... The angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. In other words, they're being, just simply being held there. But we also noticed something interesting, and I like to refer back to it because I like it. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And also look at verse 4. Now he's talking about the the saints here. And he says they are um, begotten to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And that's the same word used there. And we see here that in contrast... To the righteous ones that Peter has been talking about in his epistle and the unrighteous or the ungodly, the false teachers, the mockers and scoffers have a different thing reserved for them and these angels. But for the saint of God, there is reserved in heaven. In equal manner, what God has reserved in heaven For his righteous ones, 
is also being reserved for the unrighteous. And this world is being reserved, held in store for a future judgment, a judgment of fire. And so this world, he says, in verse 6 though, he says this, this pre-Adamic world, this, this world that was created prior to Adam being created, he says that world, he says that earth, standing out of the water and in the water. Now, that's a difficult phrase and I'm not going to take the time to go into it. Other than to say that some translate this word as compacted. Just simply meaning the earth, the solid earth came together. And the waters were removed, they were separated. Whereby then, in verse 6, then, the world or the cosmos, this ordered arrangement that then was being overflowed with water, it perished. It was done away with. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, he says, are being kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And that word perdition simply means the ruin and loss. It doesn't mean annihilation as some try to teach it. It means to suffer ruin or loss. And that can be us. Disobedience can result in ruin and loss. And I don't know about you, but see, that strikes a chord with me because I realize what a fine edge we can sometimes walk on and what that can mean. Obedience to the gospel is an important thing. Obedience to the truth is absolutely essential. Um, my time is gone. And we'll deal with verses 8 and 9 next week, Lord willing. But I would like to read the end of verse 9 where it says, The Lord is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, suffer perdition, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to a, a renewing of the mind with regard to the topic at hand here in this epistle. And that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very thing the mockers were against. Questioning. Casting into doubt was the Lord's coming. His return. That's the very thing that he wants us to be repentant about. Renewed in mind about. Is that the Lord is coming. And as we look at those events unfolding you know, around the world and we see the way things are going and the direction things are taking, why anybody would hold out hope that the present world is going to get any better 
is really beyond me. And why anybody would hold out hope that any politician, any educational system could ever bring about the kind of improvement that this world needs is, is really, when you know the truth, now it becomes mind-boggling. Now, if I didn't know this, I might be out there grasping at everything I could the way the rest of the world is. And I might be out there agitating and working hard, trying to implement programs and ideas to bring peace to the world and see justice reigning over the earth. But because we know the truth, because we know what the scriptures tell us, we understand that all of their efforts are futile. And all of these reforms that men want to bring to pass, whether it's in politics or education or the world of finance, you know, men think they can help bring about world peace by creating a single world currency. And it's just going to bring all everybody together. And there's a million other ideas of things that people are working for, greening up the earth, and whatever else you might come up with to achieve this final end, peace. And Peter tells us that it's only going to come about when we are willing to acknowledge that there is one and only one who is going to bring peace to this earth, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to give up on the very thought of his coming would shatter every dream you could ever possibly have about seeing peace on this earth. But you know, when we look at that, it tells us that there's a future. There is a future. This life that we know now is not all there is, is it? There's more coming. Do you remember the old book that Hal Lindsey wrote that really brought prophetic uh, uh, scriptures or prophecy into focus was the late great planet Earth. We're going to find out in the coming verses here just how late and great this planet will be one day because there's going to be a whole new Earth, a new heavens and a new Earth in which righteousness will dwell. And that's really what we long for. We want to be righteous ourselves. We want to live in a world that is righteous because if we have righteousness, we can have peace. And righteousness comes before peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity and privilege we have to study your word, to know your word, to have the assurance of the source of truth that it came from men who were moved by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that they're not the ideas of men that we're here just to discuss and dialogue these things, but we preach and proclaim something that is sound and sure, something we can rest our soul upon and know that there is a prospect for a future with you. Grant us, Father, that we might be willing to acknowledge that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.